The old pilot's plain tales. Operation Yonatan. Britain's rule in Uganda came to an end in 1962. What had been a protectorate was now a republic. The country suffered a turbulent time under the leadership of Milton Nabote, but now, after a military coup, Idi Amin ruled. His time in power was characterised by human rights abuses, political repression, ethnic persecution, extrajudicial killings, nepotism, corruption and gross economic mismanagement. The number killed as a result of his regime is estimated to range from 100 to 500,000 people. Amin's behaviour became increasingly bizarre. He bestowed on himself the titles His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal, Al-Haji Dr. Idi Amin Dada, Victorious Cross, DSO MC, both unearned, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the sea, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general and Uganda in particular. In addition to his officially stated claim of being the uncrowned King of Scotland, he also conferred on himself a doctorate of law and wore mounds of gold braid and medals, earning himself the Time magazine's accolade of Killer and Clown, Big-Hearted Buffoon and Strutting Martinet. His political leanings became increasingly left-wing, and he formed close ties with Gaddafi of Libya and the Soviet Union. He also became an outspoken critic of Israel. The date was the 27th of June 1976, and an Air France A300, Flight 139, took off from Tel Aviv, its destination Paris. En route, the aircraft made a planned stop at Athens, where 38 passengers disembarked and a further 56 boarded for the final leg to Paris. Unbeknown to Captain Michel Bacos, four of his new passengers were terrorists. Two were Palestinian Arabs, members of the PFLP, and two were West Germans, posing as South Africans and members of Revolutionaire Zelen. They had flown in from Bahrain on a Singapore flight, where corrupt baggage handlers had ensured that weapons and grenades were smuggled into their hand luggage undetected. Waiting patiently in the transit lounge at Athens, a notoriously lax airport, there had been no further security checks to prevent them from taking their deadly load onto the Air France jet. Soon after takeoff, Captain Bacos turned off the seatbelt lights and the hijackers attacked. Screams were heard, and thinking there might be a fire in the cabin, the flight engineer opened the flight deck door to find himself face to face with an armed man. The hijacker quickly had his gun at the captain's head, and from then on the terrorists had command of the aircraft. This was the very first hijack in Air France's history. The crew were ordered to fly the aircraft to Libya using the corsine Hafer 1. 
Whilst in the cabin, the passengers were subdued, with anyone resisting being pistol-whipped. One Frenchman was knocked to the floor and severely beaten. Passports and papers were confiscated and examined. A dual-national U.S.-Israeli Air Force officer chewed his ID to pulp just before he was searched and he escaped detection. Landing in the sweltering heat of Benghazi airport, the hijackers negotiated with the Libyan authorities for fuel. During the long hot wait, a British-born Israeli, Patricia Martel, cut herself so that she could feign a miscarriage and was released from the aircraft. Her knowledge of the situation on board proved to be vital. Finally, after refuelling the aircraft, the Libyans allowed it to get airborne again, this time bound for Uganda. Back in Israel, deep underground in the Kurya headquarters of the Israeli Defence Force, the duty officer was already briefing the Sayaet Matkal, the IDF Special Forces Unit, who were already looking for an opportunity to intervene in Benghazi, but realised that this chance had passed. Throughout the five-hour flight to Entebbe, the passengers endured a constant torrent of abuse from the terrorists, particularly from the German Brigitte Kuhlmann, much of it anti-Semitic in nature. But finally the aircraft made its approach to Entebbe, where it taxied in under bright searchlights. A further nine hours passed before the aircraft was moved to the old terminal, where the passengers and crew were finally allowed to disembark into the fly-infested building. Everyone was amazed to see that Ugandan soldiers now assisted the terrorists by guarding the hostages, whilst the hijackers relaxed and greeted three associates who were already waiting for them. They had arrived with an additional cache of weapons, including Kalashnikov assault rifles and more hand grenades. By now the hijackers' demands had been made. They wanted a ransom of five million US dollars for the aircraft, plus the release of 53 pro-Palestinian militants, 40 of whom were in Israeli jails, with the rest in four other countries. Should their demands not be met, the hostages would be killed. The next afternoon, Nidhi Amin arrived by helicopter, greeting the passengers with jovial cries of Shalom, Shalom. But when one of the hostages asked a question, addressing him as Mr. President, he flew into a complete rage, insisting on being called His Excellency Field Marshal Dr. Idi Amin Dada. He berated the innocent hostages and insisted that only Israel could solve the situation by acceding to the terrorist demands. Any hopes that Amin would intercede on their behalf had been quickly dashed. Soon the passengers were split into two groups, all the Jewish and Israelis being forced into a separate room along with the Air France crew. Over the next few days, the 148 non-Israeli hostages, including the Israeli Air Force officer who had managed to conceal his identity, were released and flown out to Paris. Those that remained were threatened with death. However, throughout this terrifying period, 
Idi Amin continued to visit, updating them on the negotiations and making idle promises, claiming that he was working towards their release. What he didn't know, however, were that plans were being made for a raid on the airport in case the negotiations failed. The initial concept involved parachuting commandos into Lake Victoria, but this idea was quickly abandoned because of the time involved and the possibility of crocodile attacks. There was also the problem of the distance that needed to be covered. Israel didn't have the necessary air-to-air refuelling assets to complete the mission non-stop, but eventually Kenya's President Kenyatta was persuaded to assist by providing fuel at Nairobi Airport. Mossad were also at work, building intelligence on the whereabouts of the hostages and the number of troops and terrorists involved. By an amazing stroke of luck, the terminal building housing the passengers had been built by an Israeli firm, so a replica was constructed for the special forces to practice on. With the aid of the information passed on by the released passengers, particularly the Israeli Air Force officer, the situation was becoming clearer and a plan was coming together. Eventually, Operation Thunderbolt was given the green light and four Israeli Air Force C-130 Hercules military transport aircraft with 100 personnel on board departed from Sharm el-Sheikh and secretly flew to Entebbe. They came in low under radar cover so that they remained undetected at no more than 100 feet at night and before the days of night vision goggles. Routing over the Red Sea, they passed south of Djibouti, northeast of Nairobi, across Somalia and Ethiopia, before flying down the Rift Valley and over Lake Victoria. Two Boeing 707s followed the C-130s, the first equipped with medical facilities, which landed at Nairobi, and the second, which circled over Entebbe, with the overall commander, General Adam, on board. The ground commander was Brigadier General Dan Nashomron, who stayed on the command C-130 with a small group of communications and support personnel. The 29-man main assault unit was entirely composed of commandos and led by Lieutenant Colonel Yonatan Netanyahu, the elder brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, the current Prime Minister of Israel. This group's objective was the safe release of the hostages. The second group were paratroopers, given the task of securing the civilian part of the airfield, keeping the runways available and secure. A third force was tasked with protecting the Hercules aircraft, which were their sole means of escape for both the hostages and the rescuers. Finally, another force of Sayaret Matkal forces were to clear the military airstrip and destroy the squadron of MiG fighter jets that might intercept them as they departed. In addition, they were to hold off Ugandan reinforcements from the nearby city garrison. With the engines throttled back, lights off and nearly whisper quiet, the C-130s landed. Their back doors were already open and the assault force drove straight out. They were led by a black Mercedes, a replica of Idi Amin's state car, 
and followed by Land Rovers that looked just like his escort. As they approached the checkpoint, the guards, knowing that Amin had just purchased a new white limousine, stopped them. Realising the game was up, the Israelis shot the Ugandans with silenced pistols and the commandos moved off, but a soldier in a following Land Rover realised that one guard was still alive. His assault rifle finished the job, but the noise would surely have alerted the terrorists. They completed their final approach at speed, and running into the terminal building, they shouted in Hebrew and English, Stay down! Stay down! But sadly, a French Israeli immigrant, misunderstood, came to his feet and was shot. In the short gun battle that followed, three terrorists were killed, but two other hostages died in the crossfire. Where are the rest of them? the commanders shouted in Hebrew. The hostages indicated a door to the main hall which was kicked open to allow grenades to be thrown in. Soon after that, the rest of the terrorists were dead. Israeli armoured personnel carriers were driven from the other C-130s to move the hostages and defend the aircraft for the hour required to refuel. MiG fighters started to explode, but by now the hostages were being loaded on board the rescue aircraft. However, the force on the runway was attracting fire from Ugandan soldiers in the control tower. A short but fierce fight ensued, wounding five commandos, but they continued to defend their position bravely. Then a bullet struck Lieutenant Colonel Netanyahu, their commander. His blood stained the red African dust as he died. The major, second in command, took over, and with the aid of rocket-propelled grenades, the resistance was finally quelled. After only 53 minutes, the raid was over. All seven terrorists, plus around 40 Ugandan soldiers, were killed, and 11 MiG-17s and 21s had been destroyed. Of the 106 hostages, three died and ten were wounded. One, the 75-year-old lady, Dora Bloch, who had been moved to a hospital in Entebbe, was left behind. The 102 rescued passengers were flown safely to Israel via Nairobi. The aftermath generated more conflict. Uganda used the floor of the United Nations in a vain attempt to condemn the rescue, but despite some criticism, the United States and the United Kingdom stood by Israel, condemning the hijacking and praising the success of the raid, calling it an impossible operation. Western nations like France and Germany and even Switzerland stood in defence of Israel, calling the rescue an act of self-defence. President Idi Amin was incensed by the attack and the rescue of the hostages. In retribution, he had the 75-year-old British Israeli Dora Bloch dragged from her hospital bed and murdered. Some doctors and nurses that tried to intervene and protect their patient were shot down. In 1987, the Ugandan Human Rights Commission revealed that Dora had been executed 
and dumped in the trunk of a car with Ugandan intelligence service number plates. In addition, Amin ordered the killing of hundreds of Kenyans living in Uganda in retaliation for Kenya's assistance in the raid. Initially called Operation Thunderbolt, this remarkable rescue was renamed in the memory of the leader of the Commando Strike Force, Lieutenant Colonel Netanyahu, who died on the runway at Entebbe, and it is now known as Operation Yonatan.